So, uh, this is Resurrection Sunday, and believe it or not, this is one of the hardest weeks to preach, because there's this, this, this pressure, like this is the one week where you're supposed to talk about the resurrection, and this is the one week where some people, this might be the only week all year that you come to church, and we are glad that you're here, and because we care about you, because we love you, we, make sure, we want to make sure that you understand the importance of the resurrection, but also this is an easy week for me to preach. Because here, week in, week out, we preach Christ and Him crucified. It is not something that we stumble upon on Easter Sunday. It is something that is the beginning and end of our teaching. It's the culmination of everything in the Scriptures. So, in that way, it's easy. But if you are here for the first time, and if you have not been to church in some time, or you think you have heard every resurrection message and you're just here to check off the box, I hope the Lord gives you ears to hear this morning. And I hope you hear the love in this message and you see the love in this church. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning is the loving sacrifice, the aspect of God's love in the resurrection. Because everyone is looking for love. And in our culture, love is everywhere. There is no shortage of books and movies and songs and businesses trying to grab onto our desire to be loved and to find love. And so many times it's described as a feeling or it's approached like a feeling, but that doesn't work because what happens when feelings change? What happens when you don't feel like loving someone? What happens when you don't feel loved? Or it might be just cuteness or niceness, but we're not always cute and we're not always nice and it doesn't last very long. That wears off too. Or maybe one of the most popular ones in our culture is sex. Sex is is love, but after that's done, then what? What really is love then if it's just a moment of passion? Biblical love does not change with us because it is not rooted in us, and this is the difference. This is why the message of love that the church has, this is why the message of love that comes out of the resurrection that drove Jesus to the cross is so different. Because it is rooted in an unchangeable God. But unfortunately, people are searching for love in changeable things. Brings to mind my favorite Star Wars nerd joke. It's like Princess Leia searching for love in all the wrong places. If you guys don't get that, ask the five people who are laughing. It's hilarious. (laughs) Uh, But the biblical definition of love... It's a verse we're all familiar with. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish and have eternal life. That was John's gospel. But in John's epistle, he unpacks it a little bit further and takes it a step further. John tells us in 1 John 4 that we understand love and we know love because the Father sent the Son and that is love manifested. That is a concept that became visible, that became visceral, that became known. And by Him sending the Son for our propitiation, it's a big word that means the final payment, the perfect payment, the complete sacrifice. By the Father sending the Son for the complete sacrifice, now we know what love is. And that complete sacrifice gave us eternal life. 
and that being our motivation to love one another. This is not just an empty love rooted in our feelings that we can drift in and out of. It is an unchangeable love rooted in the eternal God who took on flesh that we might be reconciled to him. That is what love looks like to condescend from heaven to earth, to take the beating and the punishment and the torture and the death that we might have love, or excuse me, life everlasting. And this morning we're also going to look at our response and love from that. And so, providentially, our text in Mark led us to Jesus' third prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so that will be our focus. If you're here for the first time, we are in a series in Mark. We go verse by verse, week by week. And we are going to focus on these words from, from Jesus, and we're also going to draw in the last few verses of our text from last week to show our loving response to his loving sacrifice. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Mark chapter 10. If you do not have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, like these disciples, amazed and in awe that this could be your plan. You are so much wiser than us. Who could search the depths of your mind? Who could be your counselor? Who could imagine this plan of redemption that you would put together that would include your son dying for our sins? Lord, we don't understand it, but we praise you for it. We rest in it. Lord, forgive us when we Try to stretch our minds and fit you in it instead of just falling before you in worship. Lord, let us take these truths in faith. Let us rejoice in your love for us and respond in love toward one another so that by the name of Jesus Christ, the dead might rise, the lame might walk, the blind might see. And that in him, they would have life and life everlasting. In his name we pray, amen. So in the Gospels, Jesus predicts his humiliation. So this, this whole process of going to Jerusalem and the crucifixion and all that, three times. This is the third one. This is the third, the most detailed, and the most explicit in Mark. Probably most explicit in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I want to walk through these, these details. 
And as the song we sung earlier stated, it wants you to see, it wants you to hear, it wants you to imagine what was going on. And Jesus is trying to give his disciples a picture so that they will understand. And we have the benefit of hindsight, being able to look back on this side of the cross and understand what they can't. So the first thing we're going to see is that they were, they were on the road, they're going up to Jerusalem. Up, Jerusalem is south of where they were in Galilee, just up in altitude. The Mount of Zion, God's holy hill, or the temple mount where the Jews went to worship. And they were going up to Jerusalem. So what we know about this final time in Jesus' life and, and where this falls in the Jewish religious calendar, this is the time for Passover. This is one of the three festivals where every Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. This is the reminder that Israel was redeemed, was saved out of Egypt. A price was paid for them. It was the death of the firstborn of the sons of Egypt. And this is a reminder that the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites because there was a blood covering over the doorposts. And this is a celebration and also a sacrifice in response to the God who redeemed His people. And so this is the tone in which every man would go up to Jerusalem, Jesus included. But His journey is a little different. And as I was reading this, one phrase struck me. And I can't get it out of my head all week long. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Such a simple phrase that we can gloss over. But think about this for a moment. He was walking ahead of them. Knowing that he was going to be humiliated and mocked and beaten and crucified. Knowing that his very disciples would turn and run and deny him. Knowing that he would have to take on the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he led the way. He was out in front. He is always leading the way. He always goes before his disciples. And he went, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, joyfully. The joy that is set before him. How could you, knowing that you were going to die, that you were going to be hated and go joyfully. What is the joy set before him? The joy is the love toward his own. The joy is that wicked sinners who are separated from a holy God will be reconciled. The love that says, I will bring my lost sheep home and I lay down my life for them. No one takes it from me, but I give it up freely. Jesus went ahead joyfully, lovingly. This just amazed me. While the disciples are behind, kind of like they usually are, still trying to catch up, trying to figure out what's going on, they're asking each other what Jesus is talking about. He's on a mission. The same way he took on flesh, stepped down from his heavenly throne joyfully for the love of his own. This is just incredible. Paul gives us this language in Romans 5, and this is really helpful. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans 5. If you don't have your Bibles, pick one up in front of you. 
If you don't know where Romans is, just uh, flip three books to the right. Romans chapter 5, Paul explains the amazing nature of the love of God and puts it in terms we can understand. You know, because we always want to put God in our terms. Well, let's, let's do that. Let's be consistent. What would we do in the circumstances? Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus did not die for good people. He did not, there is not one good person he died for. If you feel like I'm not worthy of him dying for me, you're right. We are all ungodly. We are all without God, without Christ. Now Paul brings us into it. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Now let's be honest. How many people are you really going to die for? You see a car speeding down the road. How many people are you going to jump in front of a car for? If you're good enough, maybe, is what Paul's saying. We would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, one might dare even to die. But look at this. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is love. To die for someone who hates you. Every fiber of their being rebels against you. And you die for them. Since Therefore, and now speaking to believers, we have been justified by His blood. How much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? If Jesus died for you, what do you have to fear? The greatest thing to fear is not fear itself. It is fear of a holy God and His wrath. But Jesus took that upon Himself. And in case you think you're still good enough, verse 10, for if while we were enemies... Apart from faith in Jesus Christ and apart from His atoning blood, you were enemies of God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You don't know love until you know this. You don't understand how loving it is till you understand how wicked you are. But when you do understand it, you rejoice, as Paul says. Next verse. So Jesus leading the way out of love. They're amazed. He takes the uh, 12 aside, and now he predicts what's going to happen. Down to the detail. Notice the details here. Ahead of it, every one of these things come to pass. Every one of these things is mentioned later on in Mark. First word here, he says, see, behold, in the original language. It's a great word. We don't use it anymore, but we should use it more often. Behold, look, pay attention. I've got something important to say. He declares this prophetic insight of where this is going to happen, what is going to happen, how it's going to happen, and when it will happen. All of these details, Jesus tells them specifically ahead of time. I want to just look at each of these briefly to paint a picture. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
Again, this would have been expected. They would have went for Passover. They always went for Passover. And they went for the other feasts as well. The Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. They would have went to give a sacrifice. But Jesus, in his mind, knows, I'm not going to give any old sacrifice. I'm not going to just give the sacrifice of a lamb. I am sacrificing myself. I am the Passover lamb. This is why we're going up. They obviously could not know that. But as he explains, imagine explaining this to the disciples, knowing that you will be the Passover lamb. So in the early church, there was no celebration of Easter. It was actually a continuation of Passover. The early believers, the early Jews who, who converted, now Passover has a full meaning. It goes from being saved out of Egypt to being saved from your sin. It goes from the blood that will cover your, your doorpost so that you will live to the blood of the Son of God who covers you that you live forever. They would continue in this this. Um, celebration of the Passover, the reminder of the God. I am the Lord your God, the God of Israel, who has brought you out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God, the God of Israel, who has brought you from death into eternal life. This has so much meaning for, so much more meaning now for the Jews as it, as it should for us. And so that's why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which we've dealt with extensively. But just as a recap, Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for Himself. Daniel 7. A man with the, with the appearance of a man who is given glory by God the Father, the Ancient of Days. God gives His glory to no one else, but somehow the Ancient of Days, the one who is without beginning, without end, gives glory to one who has the appearance of a man. And after... His death and resurrection and ascension, that picture, that vision that Daniel has will be completed as the Son gives the glory and honor and praise and dominion, or the, the, the Father gives the glory, honor, and praise and dominion to the Son that He deserves. And so this is a divine title every time Jesus speaks this. And He says, the Son of Man will be delivered up. This is, this is literally given over. This speaks of His betrayal. He knows not only is he going to die, but he's going to be delivered up. He's going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. And first, he will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. This is kind of shorthand for the Sanhedrin, for the council of Jewish elders, the Sadducees mostly and the Pharisees. These are the, the political and the religious powers, the authorities over Israel. The Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other. But the one thing they could agree on was their hatred for Jesus. And they are delivered over to them who have been plotting and planning this for some time. That's why their condemnation is not a surprise because they've been trying to kill him since early on in his ministry. He will be handed over to them. He will be condemned by them. But because they didn't have the authority to execute anyone, they had to hand him over to the Gentiles, specifically here Rome and more specifically Pilate who realizes that there's nothing in Jesus of himself that, that, that um, would warrant death. But he gives in out of fear and pressure to the Jews and even goes to the extent of, I'm washing my hands of you. His blood be on you. And the Jews shout, His blood be on us and our descendants. This is condemnation against the natural vine that 
rejects, excuse me, the natural branch that rejects the vine. And then in the hands of the Gentiles, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. This is not your normal crucifixion. Crucifixion is not a light thing. It's a horrible, miserable death. But this is one out of hatred and disdain. People found joy in this. Mocked him and laughed laughed at him and spit at him. This shows the true heart of those who oppose Christ. And every one of these extremely troubling details will come true. And these are even more troubling because one is missing. I don't know if you noticed what I said earlier. We're missing the why. Here we have the where, the what, the how, the when, but we're missing the why. This would be very hard for them to hear because they don't know why this is happening yet. One little shining light in this entire passage. After three days, he will rise. This is the only good news in all of this. And before we rush to judgment with the disciples, realize that they didn't understand this. They actually couldn't understand this. Luke tells us in Luke 9.45 that that was actually God's plan that they could not understand this. Luke 9.45 says, But they did not understand these, this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Imagine that. You're going into Jerusalem, and not only do you not understand, you can't understand. Because God has concealed it from you, because this must happen. Because we know how Peter responded when he heard it the first time, and I'm going to look at Peter in just a moment. But I want us to just take a step aside for a moment. It's easy for us to forget about the resurrection. It's easy, this side of the, the, the resurrection, to take all these things that, that we have as a given and take them for granted. The propitiation that we mentioned earlier, the perfect sacrifice, the the atonement, the covering blood that is a cleansing from sin, the regeneration that is new life in him, the the, the justification, not in that order, um, that that is being declared right before God, the adoption that is brought into God's family, all of these things are impossible if he does not rise. But all these things are so easy for us to take for granted. And I don't want us to lose our awe and wonder of these things this side of the cross. It is not possible if Jesus is still dead. We have no good news. We have no message if Jesus is not alive. He is the resurrection and the life. But this is hidden from the disciples until the Holy Spirit comes. The first time we see this all brought together is when Peter preaches in Acts 2. And the consistent theme we see throughout Acts is Jesus, who you know, who you crucified, who died, but he is raised. And he, ro- and he rose again that you might have forgiveness of sins. That if you turn to him and repent and believe, he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. An eternal life that is sealed in the Spirit. And this gets even further unpacked as we get into Paul. But right now the disciples are walking in ignorance. And this must be a terrifying time. But these things must happen. God's plan of of, of redemption is so amazing 
His love for sinners is so incredible that there was no other way than to reconcile God and in, reconcile man to God. And in some way, this is the way that God receives the most glory. Because it is impossible, improbable, outside of God's plan. So I want to take a little bit of a step back in chapter 8 to Jesus' first prediction. And Peter's response here, because this is often our response, well, why did you have to die? Why did it have to be to this extent? The first time in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus predicts, Peter, as he often does, as the spokesman of the disciples, responds in a very brash manner. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, making sure to make a public example out of Peter, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, accuser. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's plan. Men, we want the easy route. We want no difficulty. Jesus, just snap your fingers. Give me, give me the answer I want right now. Restore Israel right now, but this must happen. Stop thinking as a man, think as God. And now Jesus draws a very hard line here. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. His cross leads to our cross. There is a sacrifice on his end, but there must be a sacrifice on ours as well. You cannot expect Jesus to carry the cross for you, and you will not take up your cross and follow him. And taking up a cross is not just picking up whatever difficulty you have in life this week. Taking up the cross is saying, I will follow in the steps of Jesus. Although the world hates me and spits at me and mocks me, I will die to myself that I might live to him. For whoever would save his life, verse 35, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The disciples didn't fully understand this, but we do. We understand it in hindsight. What Jesus is asking here, I gave up heaven for you. I gave up my life on earth for you. If you want the world instead of me, you're not worthy of me. And when I return in glory to judge the living and the dead, to restore all things, I will be ashamed of you if you are ashamed of me. Jesus' words are so strong because his sacrifice is so strong. All this done out of love. Not that we would remain self-absorbed and self-righteous and focused on ourselves, that, but that we out of love and response would follow him and serve him. 
And so now we're going to get into the promises from our text last week. I told you we'd unfold them more. And I think they are more helpful in light of the cross. And so, typically Reformed guys, we are not great at talking about love. So I want to make sure we lean in this morning. Because if we don't have a gospel without love, if we don't have a sacrifice without love, if we don't have a response without love, we miss the point. This, these next few verses that we brushed over quickly last week are going to be our, the second half of the sermon, our application. Because the first half sets it out, this must happen. Jesus is going to do this. He's going to do it willfully and joyfully. He's doing it out of love for you. How could we not respond in kind? So look at these words in verses 29 through 31 of chapter 10. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Imagine you're the disciples walking in this road to Jerusalem and these words are still ringing in your head. And Peter rightly said, see, we've left everything for you. Jesus has these promises for them, for those who leave these things behind for them. One of the worst sermons I've ever heard was based on the premise that there are three responses to the teachings of Jesus. You follow him, you reject him, or you walk away indifferent. What a foolish lie. If you walk away, it is rejection. If you are throwing stones at him, or you are putting stones underneath your feet as you walk in the other direction, it is rejection and it means death. There are only two options. You either follow him and receive all of eternity with him, or you reject him for the things of this world and lose that anyway, and your soul with it. I wish I could have thrown rocks when I heard that sermon, but I wanted to. Be careful that you don't minimize this call to follow me, to leave everything behind. Jesus begins this statement with truly, amen, pay attention, this is true. This representative list of the things that are closest to us, our house, our family, our possessions, all these things should pale in comparison But let's be honest, this is hard to hear. Wait, you want me to leave behind where I sleep at night? You mean my parents, my children? Like, that's not very loving, is it, Jesus? This is hard for us to hear. But those things mean nothing if you're dead. But this is hard for us to hear because I don't think we've ever conceived of something that is so valuable we would give up everything to possess it. I mean, is there anything? Maybe a, your dream job on the other side of town or other side of the country or other side of the world. I'll give up everything to do that or whatever it is. But if you truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done and his love for you, like the one who finds this pearl of inestimable price 
that you can't put a price on sells everything to receive it. But have you thought about this? Is Jesus, the Son of the living God, crucified for your sins? Is He worth leaving it all behind? Do you love Him more than your stuff? More than your parents? More than your children? That's hard. But this is why He can say, if you've left these things for my sake and for the gospel. Because if you understand who I am and what I've done for you, which the gospel explains, then you see that it is worth it. We're going to get the, the, the promise in just a moment, but we're here with the challenge. The gospel declares it to us. But there is no gospel without sin. There is no gospel without a Savior, and there is no gospel without suffering. The word gospel, one of my favorite words in all of Scripture, it's a beautiful word. It means good news, but it's a manly word. It is a word that, that, that means good news from the battlefield. It means the news of victory. So good news in those days. And if you read the Old Testament, anytime you see a victory and someone runs and says, we've got good news, same idea. There is no good news without blood and death. There is no good news Outside of darkness, good news is victory and a stop to the bloodshed. Good news is victory of the king. And so typically the one who would bring the good news is the herald. It was his job, a very important job, to observe what happened at the battlefield. And as the king is marching back in victory, would run ahead maybe several miles. And from town to town and square to square, tell, our king is victorious. Our king has won. He has slain his enemies. They have all surrendered or they have all died. There is now peace in the land. Our king is victorious. This is good news. Another word for preaching is heralding. This is what we do when we preach the gospel. When you share the gospel, when you share the good news, this is what you are doing. My king is victorious. My king has won the battle over sin and death because of his love for sinners. If you put your faith in Him, you will have everlasting life. That is good news. Our King went to the cross joyfully. And He is risen and He is reigning in splendor. This is good news. We do not serve a dead King. Amen. Serve a King who has power over death and the grave and sin who is reigning in splendor and might and majesty right now, but also personally intercedes for those who cry out to Him. Also hears the cries of His people and continues to intercede before the Father, hearing them, listening to them, giving them His Spirit as a promised comfort and proof of His grace toward them. And His sacrifice of love asks to sacrifice anything that we love more than Him. Our love to Him is to show that nothing else even compares to you. I think Job is our greatest example of this. Everything was taken from him. But he would not curse God. 
He would not deny God. He would not blame God. And this promise that we're going to see next, this great trade, and it's a magnificent trade we see in Job. Everything was restored to him and more. So Jesus says anyone who has left house and brothers and sisters for my sake and for the gospel or excuse me, there is no one who has left these things who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. You leave and you will receive in Him. This hundredfold, it's a farming term, agrarian term. It just means a hundred times. You put a little mustard seed in and this great crop comes out of a mustard tree. This, this is the good tree that bears good fruit. And you leave this stuff behind, I will give you more than you could ever imagine. Now in this time. So you're saying there's blessings in this life? You betcha. Absolutely. Our God gives every good gift to his children and blesses us more than we could ever ask or imagine. But what he also does is he changes our expectations. When he blesses us, we're not still the same greedy, self-centered person that just wants to amass things for ourselves. But don't just focus on this time. Don't be short-sighted. Because in this life, your house, may seem, your house may be small. But if it is filled with peace and joy in our Lord Jesus Christ, it feels like a mansion. And you may have lost your family. They may hate you. But he has given you a family across the globe of brothers and sisters who when you meet, you have sweet fellowship and love with one another because they know the love that Christ has for them and for you. He will multiply in ways you could never imagine. We think so small. But also in the age to come, eternal life. Where those blessings do not fade. They do not age. They will never pass away. The things in this life are good and they are great and God gives them to us and we should celebrate them, but they are placeholder. Like here, hold this for a moment. Something much better is being prepared for you but don't hold this too tightly because it will all pass away. And you'll see all these great things and then Jesus throws in there with persecutions. Oh, wait a second. I, what do you mean? I didn't sign up for that. The smiley guy on TV told me if I just do everything right, everything's going to go right. It's not true. There will be persecutions. If they hated Jesus, they will hate you. But even the persecutions are worth it. Why? Look at 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians is the book of comfort. 2 Corinthians 4 is the chapter I go to most often when someone is hurting, when someone is going through, through difficulty, when a believer is wondering, why am I going through this, God? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And I'd love to go through the whole chapter, but we won't. Just the last three verses. Verses 16 through, 20, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you understand the eternal weight of glory, if you understand what you have in Jesus Christ, everything in this life feels like light and momentary. Maybe not in the moment, but soon after you're given perspective. 
Why? Because we are trained not to look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They change. They pass away like the world's idea of love. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the focus of the believer who walks by faith and not by sight in our, in our hope for things unseen. Our conviction for things that are not in front of our eyes. Even persecution. How do saints throughout all history, all times, how do they face persecution in this age joyfully? Because they don't belong to this age. Because they can take nothing from you that matters. I love the stories of martyrs going to their death, singing praises, praying for their captors and their torturers because it is a light momentary affliction because they know there is an eternal weight of glory prepared for them. And many people do not follow Christ. I say I'll get to it someday because it seems too difficult. It seems like I'm giving up too much. I think there's a beautiful picture of understanding this in, married, in marriage. Um, pretty soon, our single to married quotient in this, this congregation is going to change drastically. We've got a lot of young couples getting married this summer. And there will probably be more along the way. But when you are set to marry the one you love, you're not concerned with that weird little mole on their face or the, the odd personality tick or... You don't know how they are just silly when they brush their teeth or make weird sounds when they eat. It's, you, you don't, if you're not married yet, these are real things. Um, <laughs> but you don't care because you love them. Whatever you have to go through, it doesn't matter. And if you know what it means through faith in Christ to be His bride, that he calls you spotless, beautiful, and valuable. It doesn't matter what you have to go through. It doesn't matter if persecutions come, if poverty comes, if sickness comes. Because it does not pale in comparison to being married to your beloved, united for eternity, no matter what may come. This is why Christ gives us the picture of him and his bride of marriage, so we will get a little glimpse of this. Everything that we have in Him, we understand in such a small, small way. There are spiritual blessings that are imperishable beyond compare. And He gives us little glimpses within the body and within, within marriage and all these other things. There would be much grander in the life to come. And so our king in his kingdom offers blessings beyond compare, but it does not come easily, especially not to our pride. That's why this last verse is necessary. Verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What does this verse mean? It means that Jesus is speaking right to our sinful nature. We want it all. We want to build our own little kingdoms. We are trying to hold on to our things. We are trying to get our family just right. We're trying to get our house just right. We're trying to decorate the, 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 the rooms of our kingdom. 
so that we will be propped up, so that we will be comfortable, so that we will get the, the credit, putting ourselves first. But the structure of the kingdom of God is opposite to ours. If you understand how loving God is and how good God is, you are much better as a son at his table than a king of your own sandcastle. You ever built a sandcastle? If you are trying to build something in your own strength for your own glory, that is what you are doing. You can work all day on it, and it is beautiful until one wave comes and another wave comes. That sandcastle does not last. Everywhere you walk, people are building their own sandcastles, and the waves keep knocking them down, and they keep building them back up, and it's an exercise in futility. Don't build sandcastles. You've got a king who has prepared a room for you. And if you are in him, it is glorious and it is covered in gold. More than you can ever eat. Run without growing weary. All of these beautiful promises that are given to him. But it is for the humble. Not those who seek themselves first, but seek last. We're going to look at a couple quick passages in our close. The kingdom of God, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, requires humility in marriage, humility with children, humility in our possessions. Jesus brings us together well in Matthew 18. He describes the kingdom of God. He describes those who will be united to him, Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to them a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, repent, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It requires humility in all things. Children with nothing to offer, weak and helpless, also requires service because of his loving sacrifice to you. We'll deal with this next week. We don't have to go far. Look at Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They are not good rulers. They don't use their power in a righteous way. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What is Jesus' reasoning for this? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death and resurrection is even our motivation in our conduct. You must approach him like a child. You must be a servant. You must be humble. You must be last. And I want to close with this passage. Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is a masterful appeal from Paul for for unity in the church, for humility in the church. And he uses Jesus as the example. So how do believers respond to the love of God? What is our standard for love? It comes from Christ Himself. I want to read this slowly. I want to close with these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, His love, 
if you have any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, the same love as Christ, being in full accord and in one mind among the saints. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not, on, not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is the basis for all this? The resurrection changes our eternity, but also our present actions, our love, our affections. And this is what Paul appeals to. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, to that name, the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is what the resurrection teaches us. This is how we respond. So before we get ready to approach the table, I want to give you a few moments to go before the Lord. Be reconciled to God. And if you are, I hope humbly, as a child, you come to Him, seeking to serve and love one another with the love that He has shown you. And I'll give you a few minutes, and then I will lead us to the table.